Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Rigger <laughs> Podcast Network is brought to you as always by DAZONE. The old way of watching sports is over. Stream over 100 fight nights a year featuring the biggest names of boxing and MMA without the pain of pay-per-view. This is the only place you get to see Canelo Alvarez and Triple G, not to mention some great MMA fighters, behind-the-scenes content leading up to fight night, a library of classic fights, original programming, everything live on demand, available on almost any device. Download the DAZONE app on your smart TVs, tablets, mobile, gaming consoles. You also get access to the brand new MLB Live Whip Around Show Change Up on every night of the week. Getting set up is easy. Download the app in the Apple or Android App Store. Sign up by creating an account. Start watching across nearly any of your devices. That is D-A-Z-N, Zone. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're also brought to you by TheRinger.com, the world's greatest website. Has a lot of good stuff this week. We are owning Game of Thrones. Kyle, do we own Game of Thrones or is it HBO? I think HBO owns it. It feels like we own it it's this like week. It's like a co-partnership though, It right? feels this like week. we co-own it this week with them. We have like the all-time Game of Thrones meme bracket right now. You can listen to Binge Mode, get you ready for the season. You can watch Mallory and Jason's top 25 Game of Thrones moments ever. If it doesn't kill them, finishing the uh, taping schedule. Uh, so much going on. Zach Cram's written some incredible stuff. I'm really proud of the Game of Thrones content. We also have a video we premiered today. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash ringer. We did a video today that we put up. Um, an idea from Ryan Rosillo, actually. It was the NBA support group. Yeah. It was a bunch of people in a support group talking about NBA players that they just haven't been able to give up on yet. And uh, it includes Mark Titus with the Boston accent. So there you go. Check that out. Um, Wanted to give a shout out to our old friend Amos Barshad from uh, from from our Grantland days. He just put out a new book that came out today called "No One Man Should Have All That Power: How Rasputins Manipulate the World." It is out today. Um, I flipped through a couple chapters. I'm not done with it yet. It's really good. He was always one of my uh, one of my favorite Grantland feature writers that we had. We actually had him early and kind of nudged him up, um, and he became this really fabulous feature writer and this book's really good. Check that out. It is called No One Man Should Have All That Power, How Rasputins Manipulate the World. Coming up, we're going to talk to Mark Stein about Dirk Nowitzki. But first, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, Mark Stein coming up in a second. I haven't been on a podcast in a few days here. I actually went back east with my family and went to Boston a couple days there, then took my son to um, to <laughs> a couple wrestling events, um, saw a couple plays. I feel very cultured. I went to To Kill a Mockingbird on Saturday and then WrestleMania on Sunday, which are two of the greatest plays of, of a modern era. Uh, my son and I went to NXT on Friday in Brooklyn. And it was spectacular. I got to say, I really like NXT. I thought the first and last matches were out of control. The crowd was awesome. We had a great time. We had Momofuku chicken, Kyle. Momofuku chicken. They have a Momo, they have a station. In the, in the event? Or yeah. You were at the garden? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had, I've heard No, no, this. not the garden, at Barclays. Mm -hmm. So we, I got a chicken sandwich. I got chicken tenders. That was great. Um, the event was great. My son was super happy and I realized- when I take my son to these wrestling events, it's the same thing. You know, when you, you don't have a dog yet, but like if I took Thank my, God. if I took <laughs> Willie, my dog to the dog park yeah, and he's around all these other dogs and he's just so excited and he's like, Hey, other dogs. Whoa, I'm going to sniff that dog's asshole. Whoa. Hey, there's a poop. <laughs> right. And it's just like the dogs are around all the other idiotic dogs and just like having a dog frenzy. And that's what my son was like uh, at these wrestling events. It's like all his people. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're gonna chant Adam Cole, baby, too. Hey. No, no filters. How was his? Um, no filters. How was his sentiment towards the wrestlers? He wanted to lose. Were you surprised at the stuff that came out? Yeah, he he <laughs> he uh, he got mad a couple times. He was more he more roots for people than against. Yeah, he's not he's not a lot of kill him going on. No. It's more like uh, he. Uh, he was really into this guy, Walter, on NXT, who does these really hard chest slaps. 
Okay. And uh, he was like really into them. And unfortunately, he went back to the hotel room that night and kept trying to chest slap me. And I finally had to lay the smack down. <laughs> we, we had a hotel room hardcore match. So NXT was great. And then we went to uh, WrestleMania on Sunday, which my son did the most legendary thing I've ever seen him do in my life. We left the hotel at 3. We got home at 1.30 because the show was very long. And during that entire time, he did not eat food or pee. Which That's crazy for an 11 year old boy not to pee for 10 and a half, yeah, 10 and a half, yeah, 10 and a half hours or eat. He started to lose a little steam in the last hour, but again, he was around his people, he was at his dog park. Yeah, there were all these assholes to smell and all these poops to smell and all these weird bones to eat. And he was just in heaven. We had very good seats, we were right behind the announcer's table, and uh, he was just locked in. The event was too long, I think even the WWE would admit that it was five and a half hours the actual card. Um, I don't feel like any crowd, I don't care what the crowd is for and what's happening has more than four hours in it. Um, even if you had like a quintuple basketball or uh, quintuple overtime in basketball. Yeah. In the NBA. Are leaving at that point. A game people. seven. And it was quintuple overtime. I think the crowd would be tired by like the fifth overtime. Or if you had, I've been to some amazing baseball games and it gets even around the 12th, 13th inning, you just get punchy. Yeah. So the crowd was punchy and we hit that last hour and everybody's waiting for the big three-way main event with the, with the three ladies who are awesome. And there were a couple other matches in between. You could just feel the energy kind of dies. 80,000 people, um, but still cool. WrestleMania is, there's just nothing like it where you have 80,000 people crammed in a football stadium just going bonkers for stuff and people taking great. I think my favorite match was probably um, the Miz versus Shane McMahon, just because you knew it was leading to Shane McMahon almost falling to his death. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> How high do you think he fell? It was like 20, 20 feet. feet. Yeah, it was crazy. crazy. This guy's nuts. Um, Kofi Kingston. Uh, also, uh, it, this was the WrestleMania where all the favorites kind of got their due. Nice. Kofi Kingston won, Seth Rollins won, Seth Rollins won, Becky Lynch won. And uh, and my son was really into it. But, um, you know, my son's 11. I don't know how many more years I have before he doesn't want to hang out with me anymore. But <laughs> it's it reminded me that every once in a while I have to go somewhere with him where we have trap. He's a very good traveler, my kid. That's awesome, by the way. Just he's packed. He's ready to go. It's the opposite of my daughter. Packs light too, so I think I what I realized is this summer... I think I'm going to take him to, I'm going to try to do like eight ballparks in seven days and oh, see if we shit. can pull that off because wow. I really think he's, he's a good traveler. So anyway, thanks to WWE. Um, thanks to, thanks to the whole, thanks to God for giving me a son. Cause I love having a daughter, but it's also cool having a son. It's the two paths are totally different. The other thing we did, we saw to kill a mockingbird on Saturday night. And uh, I'm not a huge play guy. And this was pretty great. It, the, the production of it and the acting and, um, I'm always like so impressed. I I go to plays that I spend more time looking at how they do the sets when the sets change. I'm always like amazed yeah. by, oh, it was it's now in, now we're in a courtroom. Wait, we're outside. And like how they do that so seamlessly, combined with all these actors who are just giving the same performance that they've given seven nights in a week, and I, all of it is is uh really really kind of incredible. And I could see how people get into the whole play thing. Um, it's for me, like plays are sports. Like I love going to basketball games and that's my version of when people love going to Broadway. But I recommend that when I had a good time. My wife and uh, daughter also went to Mean Girls the night before. That's a play? Yeah. Oh man. And they love that. That sounds incredible. And then the other highlight was on Saturday, Jacoby has his three kids and he's just, it's like a dad extravaganza. Oh, I saw this picture. That yeah, yeah, we just interrupted his dad time. He was at some <laughs> sports bar with his three kids, just holding on for dear life. And we showed up, it was like throwing him a life raft. Uh, yeah, don't have three kids under the age of five. Is a lesson I learn over and over again from my friends. I'm glad I stopped it too. But he made it. Everyone got home safely. Anyway, uh, we have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. We are going to do the big... NBA awards slash playoff preview with Rosillo on Thursday. And I have no idea how long that podcast is going to be, but the over under is two hours and one minute. I'll clear some time. You going right. over for that? I'd say two over. Yeah. Yeah. I could feels say like over. two and a half. Yeah. It's going to be a very a long while. podcast. We have a lot to say. I have not, uh, 
not decided on MVP yet. I've not decided on all NBA. I will decide Wednesday night late and then hash all that stuff out with Priscilla. We also have the rewatchables is coming up. Um, I think we're taping it Wednesday, major league. And we'll put that up on, uh, on Friday. And it's me and Rembert Brown, my old Grantland teammate. Love Rembert Brown. He's been waiting his whole life for this podcast. So we're going to do that. All right. We're going to talk to Mark Stein right now. First, did you know Hulu has live sports? Watch your favorite teams in the biggest games all season with no cable or satellite subscription required. Get over 60 live and on-demand channels, tons of shows and movies, and watch on the go on your favorite devices. With Hulu, live TV plan required restrictions apply. Learn more at Hulu.com. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the Red Sox. I'm not going to panic. You're not going to make me panic. We got started out with a, with a really bad schedule. And... I think they're going to regroup and you're not going to make me nervous about it. You're just not. We have like a $250 million payroll. We're going to be fine. Don't make me nervous. You can send all your tweets. I don't care. They're bouncing right off me. So there you go. Um, and then college last night, listen to one shining podcast. If you want to hear, um, if you want to hear two, hear two people voices. that actually care about college basketball, if you can hear it in their voices. It's time for them to come back. You can hear it. It's actually hilarious. Just listen to the first five minutes. Virginia was running the four corners offense basically and won the title. Yeah. They just, they kill time for 23 seconds and then somehow get a half decent shot. That's I don't know boring. how they did it. I watched less March Madness than I've ever watched in my life this year. I have no <laughs> so regrets. So I don't proud. feel like I miss much. <laughs> um, I, it seemed like I missed a lot of bad basketball and some exciting endings. So I have no regrets. <laughs> All right. Here's uh, Mark Stein. All right, we're taping this at 10.15 Pacific time on Tuesday. There's a big Champions League match today. This man's team is playing. I can't believe he's even focused to do an interview. The first podcast guest I ever had in my whole life, that was at ESPN. We no longer work there. He's at the New York Times. I'm at the ringer. Mark Stein, how are you? I'm an emotional wreck on the ringer. (laughs) Podcast network. A lot of stuff going on for you. Um, All right, let's start. I don't want to start with the Champions League. I think people want to hear about the last 36 hours of Dirk Nowitzki in Dallas. Um, You were there the whole time. You watched him grow up. You nursed him like a little puppy into a big big alpha dog. Um, what, What are you saddest about this week? I get pretty emotional. I'm a sports nostalgic sap, so I get emotional at these things. Like, even when he and Wade did the jersey swap, that made me emotional. I was like, these guys are death rivals. Why is this this emotional? Because the the weird thing is, you can't say that it's sad. It's year 21. I mean, this this has lasted for longer than anyone has had any reason to expect. I mean, this guy has completely, you know, he invited me into his life to cover him from the closest range that probably any writer has ever got to do. And it's, you know, it's gone on for more than two decades. How, how can you be sad? But I don't know. I'm like I said, I'm just pretty, I get, I, I, it's not. It, it doesn't take much, I guess, to to, to, uh, to get the tears going. So, I, all honestly, all season long, my joke has been: I just don't want to end up on Deadspin with a picture of me crying on press row. That would not be. <laughs> that was my. That was my goal for the season. But tonight, I think everybody's going to be weepy. Yeah. The. I just can't believe how long it's been. I was thinking about when they drafted him. And I, I did a draft diary that year for the website that I had that barely anyone read that had, was like 13 months old. And the Celtics had the 10th pick. And my dad and I really wanted them to take this German guy, really only because he they were comparing him to Larry Bird. We saw these grainy videos of him. That was it. We knew he was a good shooter. It wasn't like it is now where we could have gone and watched a hundred games of him in Germany, you know, and really studied him. We were really going on nothing. And we really wanted them to take him. And then all of a sudden he falls, Pierce falls. It becomes conceivable that they're definitely get one or the other. Dallas ends up with Dirk with one of the great trades of the last 25 years. And, uh, and just even, 
him being like a multi-time all-star in 1998 felt like it would have been a huge win, right? We had no history with foreign dudes. It, to, to, for him to be, I think he's one of the best 16, 17 players of all time. For that to happen was inconceivable in 1998. When did you start to think it was actually potentially maybe going to get there? Yeah, because people always ask me, did you believe? And I'm like, I didn't believe this. Nobody believed this. The Nelsons didn't see this. Now, I did think he was going to be an all-star. When I saw him play live in Germany, remember, they, they drafted him, and then it's the lockout. And then it's September of 98, and I'm on my annual go watch city trip in England, and I convinced the morning news, send me to Germany. It's like going from Dallas to New York. So I got to watch him play. <laughs> Right, two league games there, and I was like, "This dude is like I've never seen a seven footer shoot like this." You know, I'm I'm a Braves fan, so Bob McAdoo was the you know he was the greatest, and Bob McAdoo had range, and he was considered you know the best face up big man probably before Dirk, but he didn't extend out to that kind of range. Obviously, there was no three point line for the bulk of his career. I'm sure he would have been great at it if he made the adjustment, but you didn't think you, you thought of McAdoo as, as for a little bit closer in. I mean, Dirk had this range that we had never seen before. So I thought, okay, he'll learn all the physicality stuff, but if you, if you shoot like that, you're going to be something. So I thought all-star, but like I remember that, he's, a, he's a top 20 player. I mean, nobody knew that. Yeah. So you mentioned the lockout. We didn't get to see him in Boston that first year. That's why I was going to all the games back then. And, uh, you know, it was a 50-game season, so there were the West and the East really didn't play that much. Then the next year, he came in, and he was kind of rounding into Dirk form at that point, and I actually looked it up as you were just talking because I remember he was awesome. And so he, had, he was 10 for 15 with 26 points in his first game in the Garden. But Pierce had a good game, too. But I remember leaving that game and being like, "Oh man, I don't, I don't know what that is, but that's that's something." And like you, I I revered McAdoo on on those Buffalo teams because the Celtics had some great series with him, that with them. And then, ironically, the Celtics traded for him, and he was terrible. I don't know what happened to him in the late seventies, but it was this McAdoo was this six foot ten center who his game was 20 feet from the basket that he wasn't really a center, but that's where they played him and it all kind of worked. And that's what we thought Dirk was going to be for, for, uh, I don't know, the first couple years of his careers. When did they, when did they realize that you actually needed to play him with a center? Well, they started him as a small forward. I mean, that's how messed up it was because in those days, you know, the, the prototypical four was Carl Malone. He was the best four man in the league. Right. And, you know, Dirk had no chance of, of physically matching up with, with him. And so they actually started him as a small forward until they finally realized, no, he's got to be a four. We're going to let him play his way of four. And it was just, but you've got to become a defensive rebounder. We know you're, you're not even going to be in position to be an offensive rebounder. We know you're not going to be a rim protector, but you have to be a defensive rebounder. And he really worked on that. And, you know, he, I think it was just the last game or two, he, he became, what is it, five guys who have 10,000 defensive rebounds in their career. So right. he became, his career average is flipped under eight for rebounding because the last few years, obviously, his minutes have gone down. But he became, you know, in his prime, a very serviceable defensive rebounder. I think that was, that was big for him. But, I mean, the Celtics thing is amazing because, you know, Dirk has the great hoop summit game. If that would have happened now he would have gone from unknown to number one pick in about two seconds. Right. The Babs had already decided they wanted to take him. They were trying to hide him. They were trying to convince Dirk to do no workouts. Your guy Patino still got the workout. He went to Rome. He My met guy. with Dirk. He worked <laughs> him out. The Celtics were locked. The Celtics told Dirk, if you get to 10, we are taking you 10. So, I mean, he was, he was there. I mean, Pierce flipping, you know, obviously made that a crazy draft for both. It's it's one of the great drafts of all time for for this reason. It's it's this era of the NBA where nobody really knew anything yet. The GMs were terrible. Nobody knew how to build a team. 
the fans had very limited information. It was really the embryonic stages of the internet. Even like that draft diary I wrote for my old website, you could only read it if you had an AOL address because that my site was AOL only. So like if you were at work, you couldn't read it. I would have had to mail it to you. And you have this draft where Candy goes first. He's 24 years old. It's a terrible pick as it's happening. It's like, why, why is this happening? Why are you taking a 24-year-old with the first pick with all these other guys? And Mike Bibby went second. And Pierce started dropping. And, you know, my dad and I are going nuts. We're like, does this guy, does he have a drug problem? What, what's going on? But there's no information. Like now, if this, if this was happening in 2019, there's so many different ways to react in real time and listen to what other people are thinking. But this is just me and my dad in, in his living room not understanding what's going on. And you look at that draft, Jameson goes fourth, Carter goes fifth, Dallas takes Robert Trailer sixth, and then keeps their fingers crossed that Dirk's going to be there at nine so they can flip picks with Milwaukee. Do we, did they know for sure he was going to be there at nine or were they just hoping? They, they say they knew for sure, but again, that's where like, you know, so Hughes went eight. Who went seven? I'm forgetting. Was it LaFrance that went seven? No, it was White Chocolate went seven. So the top oh, ten were Olua yeah. Candy, Mike Bibby to Vancouver, Rafe LaFrance to Denver, Toronto and Golden State take Jamison and Carter and then foot picks. Trailer goes sixth, which was crazy when that happened. That that was like, I, I, can't, I still can't believe that happened. R.I.P. Robert Trailer. Jason Williams goes seventh. Larry Hughes goes eighth. And was very open about how he was, he knew he wasn't ready for the NBA, but needed to make money for his family because he had a sick brother. And all of a sudden, Nowitzki and Pierce are there at nine and 10, and they end up being the best guys in the draft. Like, this is just something that will never happen again because we have too much intelligence now. Uh, as you said, Nowitzki in that hoop summit, he'd go first. It would be like, it would almost be like how Luka Doncic, who <laughs> went third, he should have got higher than third, but. There's just no way somebody like Doncic would ever go lower than three. And Dirk was clearly at least on that level of a talent. It, I, the whole thing's nuts to me. He also... My memory my memory sucks. As I'm getting older, I'm totally forgetting things. I'm confusing things. I don't know what, what's happening. But if I remember right, after Hoop Summit, I, I, I think Jackie McMullen was at SI at the time. And I seem to remember her quoting Larry Bird saying how great Dirk was wow. after the hoop stuff. And that still didn't get him higher than number nine. Like that, that performance alone should have vaulted him to, to three at the worst. I mean, you know, and, how he didn't go higher than nine is insane. And we didn't, look, you're talking early 2000s. I think that was the first year I had the league pass was Dirk's third year. But we, you know, there was basketball wasn't on like it is now, and it wasn't as available, and there weren't as many opinions out there. And with Dirk, we didn't know. We hoped, but I remember that 2001 season, which was his third season. That was that was kind of his breakout. You know, there there really might be something here. He's 21 and nine that year, but you could kind of feel it heading a certain way. And they had that great first round series against Malone and Stockton. And it was really like old guard, old school, MJ era, NBA against whatever the league was becoming. And they end up winning. And it, what was that last game? It was like a one point win in the game five. And it just felt like Listen, the NBA you, man, had arrived. This is, my, this is my 26th year. I still don't know if I will see anything that shocks me as much as Dallas coming back from 17 down in the fourth quarter at Utah in a deciding game. Yeah. I know Malone and Stockton were on the downside at that point. I, I get it. But you did not win road games in Utah in those days. And you certainly did not win a deciding series road game when you had no playoff experience. I mean, that was so unexpected that that Mavs team pulled that series out. I, I you know, that was, that was, I mean, that's, that's something nobody, it doesn't even crack Dirk's top 20 anymore, but. It does on my list because I, I was there and I still almost don't believe it. 84 to 83. Dirk went three for 11, but 10 for 10 from the line. Yeah. So, and that was a weird, that was a good year for the NBA because they were coming off that lockout. Um, the next year was, you know, that 99 season was just an abomination. 
the 2000 was a little more fun. Shaq and Kobe, that dynasty started. But 01 was a really good season because that was Iverson's MVP. That was Vince Carter really kind of ascended. T-Mac was turning into something. You had Dallas, the Nash Dirk thing. That was really turning into something. Um, Paul Pierce in Boston. And it was just around the league. It felt like like we were finally coming out of that MJ hangover. I still, I remember the next big thing that happened with Dirk was when he got hurt in that playoff series. I can't remember. What was it? Oh, two. And Oh, three. Oh, three. And there was a big controversy about whether he should have, you know, strapped it on and played. And, you know, it was that the whole Euro thing came up. And well, the thing is though, that's really, that really was what really started to unravel the Cuban Don Nelson relationship. It's funny. We were on, the, I went with the maps to Miami just a couple of weeks ago when, when Dirk and Wade had the, the reverse fixture, as we would say in the footy world. And, and the Mavs made their last appearance in Miami on the floor before the game. Cuban was still talking about 2003 and how, how Don Nelson wouldn't let Dirk play in that game. You know, that it was really Don Nelson's call. Oh, so that Dirk, wasn't Cuban's call. No, the, well, the doctor, the, it depends on who you believe that, you know, Cuban will tell you that the doctor cleared Dirk and Don Nelson wouldn't let him play in the game. And, you know, that is that is the prevailing version that goes around. And to this day, if you ask Dirk, could you have played in that game? He'll say, I shouldn't have. I wasn't ready. Maybe a game seven, but I wasn't ready. And, of course, the Mavs are winning that game six and Kerr and Steven Jackson go nuts in the fourth quarter and the Mavs lose with what really was one of their best teams, because that was the year they had Van Exel off the bench, and he really gave them something they didn't have before. Yeah, 03 Mavs, that's that's one of the asterisk teams from this century where if you do that season 10 times, I think they win the title a couple of those times. Like if you're just a computer simulating, they beat the Blazers in round one in seven. They beat a really good Sacramento team that was really the last stand for C-Web. They beat them in seven. Um, and then San Antonio, as you said, the Steve Kerr game. Um, and they're in Dallas at that point. Game six in Dallas. And that game is one of the more fun YouTube clips to watch because Dallas is up by like 15, 16 at some point. And Kerr comes in off the bench like a sports movie and just starts making threes. Steven Jackson got really hot in that game too. But that 03 Spurs team is still one of the more inexplicable how did they win the title teams. So you have that. You have the 03 Mavs. The next year, they lose. Nash leaves in what Cuban now admits is a, is a huge mistake. Um, then it, everything leads to 06. And really the biggest officiating crisis series we've ever had where, you know, if, if anything, Wade... A way to it's it's it was bad for him legacy wise because he was so incredible in that series, but the officials were the only thing anyone remembers. Did you think Mark Cuban was going to get suspended for life after that series? The bigger question was was he going to sell the team, and ultimately he couldn't bring himself to do that. But he was so out of it and so despondent after that that he was certainly behind the scenes threatening it. Yeah, and I'm sure if you have on, he'll say. He was closer to it than we ever knew. Now, just having observed him for the last 20 years, I can't imagine him being able to survive one second without the Mavs in his life. So I never right. really believed it. But look, the worst part of all that for Nowitzki was, I mean, that's it. he's getting all these bouquets now and everyone loves him. He is a universally loved player. He is like, I, he hates when I make this, reference because I've told him and you know he's a tennis guy and you 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 know your tennis from the 80s he's like Martina Navratilova late in his career like everybody loves him everybody roots for him he's the old guy but it wasn't like that for a decade for a decade it was you're soft you can't get it done you're European you'll never be able to lead a team and and you know he he knows that that that's what everyone was saying and you know I'm sure that was not fun to live with for a decade yeah, I remember when Shaq became available in 04 and it came out that Cuban had turned down the chance to get Shaq with Nowitzki in the trade. And I wrote a whole piece at the time like, this is crazy. Um, whoever gets Shaq is going to win a title over the next three years. There's He will be pissed off. 
He's got two to three great years left. And the chance to win a title should trump anything else. I didn't think Dirk's ceiling was as high as it was. And, you know, after the 07 and the the, the round one loss to the Warriors, which, um, you know, it re- and he wins the MVP and he they had already lost. Like, that whole thing was horrible. Um, but from that point on, it just really felt like you could kind of guess where his career was going, where he was going to be like, oh, that, yeah, he was great, but, and there was always going to be that comma, but, dot, dot, dot. And people are going to say, yeah, I mean, he was soft. Be, you know, if, if he didn't win at 11, does he, is he still a mouse? Does, does he leave to go get the title somewhere else? Right. I mean, I think that's a very fair question and an obvious question. But I think what also made his story so unique, and I remember, I mean, I remember you writing about this when we were, when we were teammates back in that 06. Yeah. It seemed when they beat San Antonio in game seven. Yeah. It's probably the best single game I've ever had the privilege of being at in person. When he did that, you thought, okay, now he's got, he, he's, he's at the summit. He just beat Tim Duncan and San Antonio on their floor in a game seven. But then, then he backslid the way the finals unfolded in 06. And then obviously the first round loss in 07. So it was like, he conquered this huge obstacle, but then regressed. And he didn't just like, you would have thought after beating San Antonio that he would have just kept going up and win a championship. And, and so it's like, he had to do it again. That's what made it, I think, unusual. Yeah. I remember during the 06 playoffs, I wrote that. That was when I wrote the 42 club column about, if you add up points, rebounds, and assists for somebody in the playoffs and they've played like at least 12 games and the average is over 42, that means something like substantial is happening. And he just like laid the smack down for three weeks in a way that we had really not seen a forward do, I'm going to say like since Barkley in the 92-93 range where just like, Points, rebounds, unstoppable, inside, outside, everything. And at some point, it really did feel like it was his year. And that you mentioned that game seven against the Spurs. That's like one of the great lost games of the century. You know, they Manu, with the all-time dumb foul, um, which he regretted even as he was fouling him. He didn't mean to. Dirk gets, the three, gets this incredible clutch three-point play to send the game into OT. And comes through, and it really seemed at that point, wow, this guy's going to be an all-timer. And then two years later, we're wondering what happened to him. And it really seemed like he kind of hit rock bottom mentally. He was going through some stuff personally, too. He was in a weird relationship that was going south. And uh, was that what was that one year he went he went hiking all summer? What did he do that summer? So, no, this was after 07. So after he wins MVP, but they lose to the We Believe Warriors, he... And Holger Gespinner, his longtime shooting coach, they went to the Australian outback. I mean, they spent like a month just completely away from civilization. And, uh, you know, he he started to bounce back from it after that because, you know, 09, what you're referencing, when he had all his personal trouble and his, you know, his personal life all out in the open. Go, go look at his stats from the 09 series against Denver. He was incredible in the middle of all that. I think he averaged 35 and 12 and shot like 58% from the field, something like that. Crazy numbers in that Denver series because the Mavs had a horrible team. It was the early days of the Carlisle era, and the team was just awful. And they hadn't figured out how to use kid yet. They didn't have the right role. You know, they, you know the, the 11 team had all the hungry role players and it just all fit perfectly. You know, in, in 09, it was close to that. But it's it's one of the best final stories we've ever had. Every And this happens sometimes in the playoffs. Everything lined up for them. You know, you had you had that Lakers team that just imploded at the perfect time. Um, they're catching Miami during month seven of this stretch, or month eight, where they're just the biggest villains the league has had since the bad boys Pistons. Everybody's rooting against them. And then, you know, the game two, the famous, uh, with they're making fun of, of uh, what did Wade hit the three in front of the Dallas bench and gave yep. them shit. And they have this great comeback that game. And then it was just a force of will after that, where um, 
I went to all three of those games. The crowd definitely broke Miami a little in game four and game five. And uh, and it was just so cool to see somebody alter his own destiny. And so it doesn't happen that often in sports where you, you look at just like a two-week stretch and you go, wow, if this goes differently, we're remembering this guy in a completely different way. And it's one of the unfair things about legacies with sports. But, you know, if Dirk never wins the title, he's a top 25 guy. He's in that range with like Barkley and Carl Malone. And we say, yeah, great guy, but dot, dot, dot. And then he wins a title and that's it. He's one of the best 15 guys ever. He's in the conversation for best foreign player ever with Hakeem. I would still give a slight edge to Hakeem. He's one of the greatest forwards of all time. Uh, I would I would definitely probably have him LeBron, Bird. I guess he's third, unless you count half I mean, as position, a forward. My position is always this. I mean, Duncan, the Spurs and Duncan, that was the Mavs forever rival throughout his career. Duncan yep. won five championships. You can't, you can't compare five to one. With Duncan a Dirk, forward, though? Dirk, Dirk changed his position. That, that is his bigger legacy. He won the championship, and that puts him in the top 20. But how many guys changed their position? He yeah. Did. And that, and that, and you know, no, no slight to a team, but I think a team by virtue of having played college here, and because of what Dirk means in the history of the game for just completely changing what we expect out of a out of a four man and just opening up the game. I mean, I think those are just massive, massive achievements. So if Duncan counts as a forward, I have LeBron, Bird, and Duncan ahead of him. Yeah, and there's a Durant versus Dirk argument. I, I would say Durant's probably a tad higher because of, uh, you know, one MVP, four second place finishes, two finals MVPs. And so would Dirk. I mean, Dirk, you know, what what is Durant? It's Dirk with crazy athleticism. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's... The, it's and, and the what if with his career is if Nash doesn't leave and what happens... You know, maybe Nash needed to leave. Maybe Nash needed the the kind of fuck you edge. Maybe he needed the Phoenix Suns training staff. Says that, and I, I'm sure we've done this before on the pod. Everybody I'm sure we have too. They both needed to leave to go to. I think that is such a, a joke. Nash left the year they changed the hand check rule. We never got to see what Dirk and Nash would have been in the seven seconds or less era. I mean, yep. the, the rules literally changed that off season that Nash went to the sun. Yeah. And now Nash, now Nash also was pissed. He was furious at the Mavs. You know, he felt really, uh, you know, gift that the Suns offered him 66 million and the Mavs wouldn't go higher than 36 million over four. He changed his body. He, he just became, you know, that certainly was a factor, too. So it wasn't just all all the rules changes. But I have to think Nash and Dirk win at least one and maybe two together. Yeah, I would say the over-under is one and a half. I, I obviously, I think they would have been better off staying together. The, the only questions I have is, did Nash need to go to Phoenix to reach his full potential as a player, both from having that edge of having Dallas basically give up on him you know, especially when Mark Cuban, who's splurging on everybody, decides sixty million was too rich for his blood. Um, that and also like, definitely the Phoenix training staff was ahead of its time. Some of the stuff they were doing, and they were really able to keep him in great shape for five, six years. I don't know if Dallas would have been able to do that. It's a what if. And Dan Tony, and, and look, I, you know, I am a huge Dan Tony disciple. I know he hasn't won, so he has a lot of critics. Yep. And it's, you know, he'll, he'll be just like Nowitzki. If he doesn't win, there will always be a segment of the basketball public that, that says it was all a regular season mirage. He's not this. He's not that. No. I mean, he's, he's done it in Phoenix. He's done it with his Houston team. He's done it with different styles. And Nash benefited hugely from that. Nelly was nearing the end. I don't think Avery Johnson, who would have gotten that job, I don't know that the Mavs would have been this freewheeling machine with Avery at the controls and Nash as his point guard. So there's no question. Yeah, that's fair. Playing Tony was big for Nash. No question. I remember uh, when Dirk 
I did a podcast with Dirk at All Star. It was like 20 minutes the year after he won. And the the personality transformation was hilarious. I, I've never seen you always hear that thing about getting the monkey off your back and wow, you're so much more relaxed now. But you, you literally could feel it and see him. He was just so happy. He was so relieved. And that was one of the first times I remember thinking like about the effects that the media and the fans have on a player and how they think about their career and their legacy. Cause it was tied into what was going on with LeBron and that 2011 season too. Even thinking about like my own column and like, wow, you know, I write stuff and that guy might read it. You know, it sounds stupid, but to see how, like how just at peace he was with everything was really eye opening for me. And unfortunately as a basketball fan, he was too at peace because he just basically wasted the decade on all these forgettable teams after that title. And I, I just wish he had been in the mix a little bit more from a playoff standpoint. You don't even think he really cared, right? I think he does care, but it's also just, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a criticism of him, I think. And, and a fair one. He, he, he never for my money meddled enough in team building and team building matters. Yeah, and he could have held Cuban's feet to the fire a lot more forcefully than he did, and it's just not his way. He's just one of those guys that he's accepting of the cards you give him. And yeah, I mean, look, these last eight years since the championship, I mean, I, I think they've been they've been harder than the ten getting there because at least in the ten getting there, they're winning fifty games every yeah, year. They're relevant. He's developing his game. I mean. You know, there were a lot of heartbreaks in there, but I mean, they were all, I mean, it's just been rough these, these last eight years. And now, you know, they've got Dodgers and Porzingis and he's, he's, unless he comes back for one more year, which obviously looks unlikely in the extreme, he's not going to get to partake in any of that. So, well, it's it's just him. It's just him. The big mistake. And it's funny because we also get, I mean, we're hypocrites. All of us, let's face it. Um, we get mad when athletes do this. And I take it personally when LeBron tries to trade his entire team at the, at the All-Star break and stuff like that. Nowitzki, if he had spoken up during that summer of 2011, when all of a sudden it became clear that they weren't going to, or I guess it was actually December 2011. It was after the lockout. When they decided they were going to move away from Tyson Chandler, which was a terrible idea. And didn't make sense at the time. And Dallas was really feeling themselves. They had just won the title. And they were like, no, actually, this is how we're going to do it. We're, we, we're smarter than, than the league. We're going to figure this out. But the reality is, if they had brought back Tyson Chandler, they could have had a chance to win that title that year. Remember? Because they, they, they lost to OKC in round one. They got smoked. OKC ended up making it like two years before anybody ever thought they were going to make the finals or a year before. And that, yeah, that, that was kind of open. They, they blew that team up for free agent positioning, and that was 2011, and the Mavs were still waiting for their free agent slash, and it's 2019. I mean, they, which is why they just gave up so much for Perzingis. They yeah. learned too many times they don't do well in free agency for whatever reason. And so they're, they've always been much better making the big swing trade. And they've had plenty of those that have blown up in their face with Rondo and Lamar Odom. But, you know, they they pushed all the chips in for Porzingis. And if you if you follow their history, you understand why. Yeah, that was it was an indefensible title defense because they were bringing back most of the good players in that team and somebody who is still in his prime or, or very close to his prime as a superstar. And I'm always of the belief, like you just never know with this stuff. And they, they got cute with Chandler. It turned out to be what, four years, 55 million. So that was a bummer. I, it's funny because they, they both put around a lot of successful pieces and spent a lot of money and did a lot of the right things you would need. And they ended up winning a finals and make another finals trip. Um, but at the same time, I do feel like the Mavs failed him in some ways too with some with some of the moves over the years. Like Nash and Chandler, I think, being the two biggest ones. On the flip side, I hated the Jason Kidd trade. I remember we argued about it on one of my first podcasts. 
and uh, and they don't win the title without him. So I think like everything else, there's some some uh, some ups and downs. So let's take a quick no, break. The first, no, just the first couple of years of Kid were rough, but like you just said, I mean, he was, I mean, he was so important on that title team. I mean, you know, the D he played against Kobe and Durant. I mean, he's ridiculous yeah. stuff. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break, and then I want to ask you two more questions. Erectile dysfunction is like a check engine light for your body. It's often the first sign of something more serious going on, like high blood pressure, heart condition, diabetes, and more. 52% of men will experience ED in their life. About 70% won't talk to a doctor about it. It's time to talk to a doctor. Take care of it with Roman, a one-stop shop where you can treat ED from the comfort and privacy of your own home. Handle everything online in a convenient, discreet manner. Getting started simple, go to getroman.com slash bill. Complete an online visit. If your doctor decides that treatment would be appropriate, they can prescribe genuine medication that can be delivered in discreet packaging right to your door, free two-day shipping. So talk to a doctor. Erectile dysfunction can be tough to tackle, but it's really important to get checked out with Roman. It's easy to take care of. They're giving new members a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Go to getroman.com slash bill. Once again, that is getroman.com slash bill for a free visit to get started. Getroman.com slash bill. Back to Mark Stein. All right, so give me a story that you haven't given on another radio show or podcast yet um, that you're going to give like 45 years from now when old man Stein is living in um, in England in Manchester and <laughs> being wheeled into the games and somebody is like, hey, what was Dirk Nowitzki like? Man, you always hit me with a stumper that I'm not ready for. Um. I think he was a little behind, never publicly, but behind the scenes, and and I'm sure he did this with teammates, I think he was more of a trash talker and kind of uh, cocky about himself, but just never for public consumption. Like he, I remember he used to have this thing where he would, you know, after the title, he would say things like, an ant is an elephant on my shoulders. And stuff. You know, he would say things like that in private. Never, he would never do it for a camera. Right. But I think he did, he did kind of build up a swag as the years went on that just, you know, he plays the, the humble dude on, on TV, but. Right. Uh, but he was the, I, we, he was the shit talking German. When you, t- when you were talking about 06 and 07, I think my favorite part of those, I actually went back and what, like, when he, when he broke 30K points, NBA, NBA TV put together a really nice, like, top 50 dirt plays of all time. When you watch him early on, even when he was starting to have success, like, he would dunk over guys, but the look on his face was almost like, wow, that was an accident. Like, how did yeah. I just do that? I can't really believe that. But by 06 and 07, that's when the dirt face started and, like, he would pull the mouthpiece out to like do the sneer at the crowd. And like, you know, it's, it's funny how he had the, you know, he didn't, he didn't start out that way. Like Luca has that from minute one. He, he it took years and years and years to, to build that up. But I guess, I guess it's a long way of saying he has more swag and cockiness probably than, than you would think, but it's all kept behind the scenes. And also a really you know, I was thinking. I was thinking about his career and what I'm going to miss about it. I thought he was a good playoff player, which it sounds weird to say, but I do think certain guys just translate better to the playoffs, and he was one of them. Like I was looking at his stats from '02 through 2012. He 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 played 118 games. He played 41.4 minutes a game, and was just 26 and 10. That entire time with 47, 39, 89 splits, shooting splits. So almost a 40% three-point shooter. Um, Just really good for the most part when the bacon was on the line. And, you know, I think the what if with his career for me, other than the Nash thing, is if you just took 1999 Dirk Nowitzki and fast-forwarded him to 2014 and then played out his career with the way we're playing basketball now, what does it look like? How many threes does he take? Are his moves the same? Does he have the same kind of inside-outside game? Or is he just purely um, basically a three-point free? Does he do basically what Harden's doing now in Houston? Does he tailor his game after that, or does it look exactly the same? What do you think? 
And also, don't don't forget the years that Avery coached him, and he wouldn't let him shoot three. I mean, and that was actually beneficial. He made Nowitzki cut way down on the threes and yeah. made him ask, you know, a post up game and more and and focus more on the mid range and score in different ways. So, you know, by the time he got to eleven, he was just he was a surgeon. He, you know, you watch him in the eleven playoffs, the Oklahoma City series, especially. He, by then, he was a surgeon. He, he, he put it all together. He put the long range, the mid range, and the post up all together. And he, he had to do it in steps. But I think you're right. I think he, his playoff numbers hold up well. He's, he, he's a big arena player, too. Fantastic in Boston. Yeah. New York, always great at Madison Square Garden. I mean, he, he even all, I mean, this year his shooting has just abandoned him so many times. And in the All Star game, he throws in three bombs. I mean, right. he he didn't start out that way. You you know, right off the top, you you noted those numbers, how bad it was in a deciding game in Utah. But by you know, he turned himself into a money play. And I love, I love guys that get to the line in the playoffs more than they did in the regular season. Like you look at the first, the first, uh, those for that twelve year stretch from basically. Let's go 01 through 2011 for the, just for the playoffs. He's at nine free throws a game. Like he was usually six or seven during the season. But as you said, he, he just completely perfected that inside outside. I'm going to do this, this one. Oh, they're giving me this. Oh, they're going to put this guy on me. I'm posting him up. And then I don't know what year it was when he developed that shove the knee into somebody's balls, fade away <laughs> Shot from the free throw line. What year was that? Like 09, 2010? All of a sudden it was... I mean, 11 is when people really took notice of it. That playoff run is really when it came to prominence and everybody, you know, he was doing it, you know, and, and people were, were talking about it. It was but unstoppable. I mean, go, go back go, go back and watch the Manu play. Kerr is doing the game for TNT. And he even says he thought Dirk was going to pull up and shoot something outside. The fact, you know... Dirk taking it to the rim, he, you know, Kerr was doing the game and didn't expect it. And that was, you know, credit to Avery. Avery made him change his mindset and and told him and tried to make him be more of an inside player. And, you know, the biggest play in his career to that point, he took it right to the rack. I think the most unstoppable shot of my lifetime was Kareem Skyhook. And Kareem is now the most underrated megastar we've ever had. I mean, he's still should always be mentioned in any greatest conversation ever. And it never so does. It's amazing that he never is mentioned. It's, How it's ludicrous. It's really ludicrous. And he should always be mentioned, even though I, he's my least favorite basketball player of all time. And I love rooting against him. Um, but new, that Nowitzki, that uh, I saw him on the foul line, once they figured out how to space him with shooters, which really took, you know, nine, 10 years. And it was really just one-on-one with whoever he got switched on. And you knew what he was going to do, and he could still do it. It's got to be like in the top six or seven, I think, all time. Well, for you best know, moves. If, if Holger wanted Dirk to learn the skyhook, and that's like the one thing that he never figured out a way to add. But you know, Kareem always says that. Oh, you know, I don't know why more guys use it. How is how is the skyhook easy? I mean, I don't know how it's considered easy. It's it's not an easy shot. No, it's bizarre to watch. Even. He, somebody had a clip of when he broke the scoring record on on Twitter the other day, and I was watching him shoot the skyhook over Eaton to break the thing. And even then, I was like, "How did he do that?" I was like, I, I, and nobody's ever come close to doing it. But how does somebody extend the ball to the absolute top of their reach and then just flick a flick a shot that always goes in? I mean, Dirk messed around with it in off seasons and never got to the point that he felt comfortable shooting it in game. So if someone like him can't, like who, who's going to learn? Yeah. Um, last thing. Well, we, I don't think we need to go over the whole Wade and Nowitzki leaving these two guys that meant so much to their cities and how that era might be heading toward an end, just the way basketball is going, where guys become these employees for hire in these different cities and they move around and, they're their own CEO and they're basically their own team. Um, I do think as I watched this week with Wade and Nowitzki though, it 
reminds people why it still matters to be, there is still some value to playing in the same city that you cannot make up if you're jumping around. Like LeBron, I don't know where LeBron's going to end his career, but it's going to be in a city that he's not really attached to. Whereas like Nowitzki, Wade, I think Paul Pierce is another one that recently we've seen it. Um, the connection that guys have when you watch the beginning, middle, and end of somebody's career is just deeper. And that's a really hard thing to, to explain to somebody like Anthony Davis when he's 25 and he wants to go to a bigger market. Um, but he's going to bounce around and, and his career is just not, he, he's not going to belong to anybody. And I think Dirk belongs to Dallas. You said on the pod last time, you thought he was more popular than a cowboy. Brian Curtis, Texas native. Um, he wants to argue with you about that at some point. Um, I know he wants, I know he wants to fight me on that, but again, you know, so, so which, which cowboy is it as it, you know, again, I am, I am not going to sit here and pretend that I am an NFL expert of any, I, I mean, I should, I probably shouldn't even be talking about the NFL, but I've lived here 21 years. I got here basically 15 months before they drafted in the bit. The nineties Cowboys had so many stars. I don't think you can just say one Lords over the other Aikman Smith. I mean, how do you, how do you pick one from that, from that group? Yeah. And then, okay. When we were kids, Roger Staubach and Tom Landry were massive. The kids of today, like I, I, again, I've lived here for 21 years. I'm not, I do not want to insult the legend of Roger Staubach, yeah. but that was a long time ago. And I, you know, Dirk, the 30,000 points is amazing. He's not going to stay number six in scoring forever, but 21 years with one team, I mean, that's three more than Reggie Miller. I, I don't think anyone is going to break that record. I think that record is the one that will stand for eternity, and it is, it, it, I know it means a lot to him. He could have left a zillion times. Yeah. And then Levitard really pissed me off. He wrote such an amazing piece on Wade, and now I'm like, I got to write my Dirk piece this week, and I'm just going to be looking at that going, how am I going to write something even close to this? But read what Levitard wrote about Wade. I mean, the Heat had success before he got there, but he made, I mean, he's bigger than Marino. He made yeah. them matter. He's number one. He is an unquestioned number one in the Miami sports pantheon. So, and I, I do think those guys share that. Share they share that. But unlike Dirk, he left. He went to uh, he went to Chicago. He went to Cleveland. But Dirk I don't stayed. think they hold it against them now. No, they don't. They definitely don't. Um, last thing I wanted to mention. Um, I remember 2009 range. You introduced me to Nash. Um, or maybe 2008, I forget what it was somewhere in the late two thousands. And you were very protective of your relationship with Nash. You had spent all this time with Nash and Nowitzki in this old school journalism way, where just putting in the time week after week and, and building real relationships with those guys where they were sources and you just knew them and they knew you and there was a real trust. And I think about it at the end of Dirk's career now, that era is kind of over because the players are connected to everybody. You know, if I, if I wanted to get a hold of Nash now, I would just, we would follow each other on Twitter. I'd DM them. The players text and DM so many different journalists. They're juggling 30 different relationships that aren't really substantial at all. And that whole era that you kind of made your bones in, in the mid nineties of, really just putting in the time day after day, week after week. Do you feel like that's over or is, have we just moved into something different? I mean, it's over probably for me, but you know, we're 50 and it's harder to relate to a 20 year old NBA player. But let's say but if you're a 28 year old Mark Stein, do you, I, do you, could you still even have that with a, a player think, or two yeah, players? I think, I think, I think there are guys working it today who can still, like it's it's certainly different, but be, like it's 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 two things with Twitter and texting. Like you can stay in constant touch with guys that you couldn't when I was doing it, or even the generation before me. Yeah. But maybe, but maybe you don't. But maybe there are also more walls today than there are now because the demands on these guys are so much. But like Marcus Thompson, Chris Haynes. I mean, these guys. 
you know, I see them working really hard to build relationships and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm around that Warriors team and I have some good relationships with, with, with players there, but those, you know, those two in particular, Mark, Mark Spears too, all three of them, they've taken it to a different level. I mean, they, you know, they're, you can still do it, but it's, it's, I think also it's just a sheer numbers game. There are so many people at any NBA media availability now, yeah. hundreds. The Mavs locker room at home game, I, I can't even go in there. <laughs> it, there are a hundred people in there. Yeah. I mean, for a nothing Tuesday night game against whoever. And so it's just, it's just, I mean, you got it. There were times, there were so many times covering even the, you know, the, the greatest, the great Mavs teams that it would be the star telegram reporter and me. And that's it. I mean, so it's a lot easier to build relationships when they see two faces instead of a hundred. You know, I agree. Um, I think the difference is those were like your guys and it was really hard for a lot of people to have a relationship like that. You had, you were in a unique situation and you also worked the relationships. I think now it's hard for anybody to, to be like, those are my guys because even Marcus Thompson, Chris Haynes, all those guys, and they're with them day to day, but anybody else can still get in touch with, with Curry or Duran or whoever, and, and they can interact with them. Yeah, but here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example. I'll give you another example. Joe Varden does not live in Los Angeles, but he spent four years traveling around with LeBron. Yep. Every time he sees LeBron, LeBron gives him a one-on-one. My hat is off to Joe Varden. That, that, like, he gets LeBron to say stuff that nobody else gets. And I'm, yeah. like, I'm, not, saying, I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm giving you a very small number of examples here, but, but I think the point is it can still be done, but it just, it's it just takes harder. a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, when you introduced me to Nash, that was like really magnanimous. You're a great teammate. That was really magnanimous of you. Cause you could have just hoarded Nash. I never would have gotten to know. I don't know how it would have gotten to him until well, I here's guess. The, here's the, the backstory on that is it's like this. See, I've covered Nash so long. He, he he doesn't love doing interviews. Yeah. And so he kind of expects me to, to just leave him alone because he knows that I know he doesn't want to do interviews. The problem is he's an absolutely incredible interview, which is why you want him on your pod. Right. So I got to hear him go on all these pods and give all this insight, you know, and, and, and so, yeah, of course there's, it's, it's, I don't uh, know how you did it. You, you ended up with two of like the best seven thoughtful NBA stars we've ever had in the, on the team at the same time. It was, it was honestly like winning the lottery. Maybe God back, God got back at you with uh, Manchester city, I think. Um, and, who, and, and who won three MVPs predicted by zero people in 1998 <laughs> when they got together. Uh, very quickly. And then we're going, who are you picking Harden or Giannis? Well, knock on wood, I don't have to submit a real pick. I'm one of the greatest things about the New York Times is I don't actually vote anymore. I'm thrilled that I don't, but I do. Uh, later today, my newsletter will come out with my picks, and I gave it to Giannis by 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 the smallest of margins. I really actually do feel for Harden because it's it's to, to, to now be he's going to get. I think he's going to lose, and it's going to be what three second place finishes in five years, and it's still impressive. We haven't seen. We haven't seen a gap at the. I think it's been since Neek and and Jordan in eighty six eighty seven that he's going to win the scoring title by eight points. I mean he's he, he's really unfortunate if he comes in second, but I just think this was Milwaukee's season. They were the story of the season. They went from forty four wins to the only sixty win team in the league, only team that's been top three in both offensive and defensive efficiency. Giannis, you you. There's a Budenholzer factor. John Horses had a great run as GM, but Giannis is the face of the whole transformation, and I just think that pushes him over the top. And they had to beat out three really good teams to win the East. And going, if we went back in October, none of us were picking Milwaukee right. to finish better than Boston and Philly, and we, we we did and Toronto. We just weren't. Nobody was picking them to to come out on top, and and that's where he gets extra credit for me. Would you be okay with me leaving LeBron off third team All NBA? Yes, I. Um, you, that's where you and Zach, you guys have taken it to a new level. I do not obsess over the All NBA thing. Like I know you and Rosillo can do two hours on it. I I still I, care. I, I 
I do not twist myself into a pretzel. I'm really glad I don't have to vote on that anymore because I hate the fact that media votes are deciding these super matches in millions of dollars. But whenever I complain to the league about it, they say, well, who else can do it? You guys are the closest thing to unbiased. And, you know, I guess I can't really argue with that. But at least there's real accountability these days. Um, All right. This was fun. Uh, try to hold it together. Don't end up on a sports blog weeping, (laughs) (laughs) weeping on press row. That would be really sad. It's a sad way. uh, It's a sad way for Dirk's career to end with a sobbing Mark Stein on a sports blog. I'm bringing sunglasses to the game. Maybe get a good cry beforehand. Maybe make yourself cry around four o'clock. Just get it all out. Get all the tears out of your body. If City doesn't do well in this Champions League tie, that might do it. That might be the tears. Yeah. Good luck with that too. And uh, look forward to reading you in the Times. As always, a pleasure. My friend Mark Stein, thanks for coming on. Thanks, brother. All right, thanks so much to DAZN. Don't forget, you can download it on uh, on their app on almost any smart TV, a lot of devices, Apple, Android, whatever you want. Sign up, create an account, start watching across nearly any of your devices, D-A-Z-N. And thanks to Simply Safe. Simply Safe Home Security has everything you need to stop fear at the front door, including 24-7 protection with security experts on standby to send the authorities in an emergency. Simply Safe will even keep working if the power goes out, if the Wi-Fi goes down, or if a burglar smashes your keypad so you know your home is secure always. Try Simply Safe, see how good it feels to fear less. Just go to simplysafe.com slash BS to learn more. That is simplysafe.com slash BS. Simply Safe with two eyes. Back with more later in the week.